Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shaninger. I'm your host, Lucia Rahili. Worldwide, 2020 has unspooled like no other year in recent memory. COVID-19 and the global pandemic are testing all of us, and if you are a people leader in your organization, you're in the thick of an unprecedented challenge. Leaders have needed to remain focused on moving forward amid protracted and destabilizing uncertainty, and that means helping their employees navigate complex emotions, grief, stress, loneliness, that most of us simply are not used to in the workplace, at least at the scale we're seeing now in this ongoing crisis. Today, we'll talk to Brian and Bill about mapping this new emotional landscape in the workplace, what's different, what they're hearing from leaders across the globe, and how best to respond. Bill, Brian, welcome back. It's great to be here. Great to be with you. It's been a long time. I so wish we could be in New York, as is our want recording. We've been interrupted by COVID, as everyone else has been. Tell me, how are the two of you feeling? What's your COVID state of mind? I'm like a caged animal, honestly. (laughs) I've been in my office for six months. I don't get on airplanes anymore. And while the client work has been really interesting, like really interesting, because it's really pressing stuff, like what's happening to the work? How do we think differently about the workforce? And even do we permanently change the workplace? That's been awesome. And I've been blown away by how much we've been able to do in in a completely Mm -hmm. remote environment. But the interaction part, if anything, I think this has changed for us just how much we needed to go see clients and maybe made that clear to us that we actually really liked going and seeing clients. Because the old trope used to be, oh, I got to go get on a plane. Well, see how you feel about that when you can't get on a plane for six months. And I suspect for us that that direct connection, pretty important. Yeah, it's interesting. I found we were able to connect with the clients pretty well, but it's our team that's the challenging part. So I was working with a partner colleague uh, that is the first time I had the opportunity to work with him was during COVID. And it took six weeks for us to have the conversation that you would normally have over a beer the first night that you're at a client. Like, hey, you know, tell me more about your background. Oh, you like you know, hosting brunch in New York. That sounds like fun. That's the kind of thing I'd like to come to. Where's my invite? You know, the the kinds of things that you get to know somebody on a more personal level, particularly the team members, that I miss. And that's where I think, you know, COVID is, at least for me, you know, the the people part of what we do, in addition to the client part, is important. And I feel like, you know, that's not, it's not quite the same. There are a host of challenges, right? And this pandemic, it, it can just feel grueling for so many people. It's dragging on and the on. The clients are seeing that, that part, Lucia, the idea that it, it, you, know, you, can almost, you can endure almost anything. In the early days, we were treating this almost like a natural disaster. Yes. You know, and you can have all hands on deck run to the fire. And you can maybe even sustain that three, four, five, six weeks. At some point, when it starts becoming clear, oh, this is going to be this way for a while, I think there's almost like this emotion. In fact, some of our colleagues are writing about grief. I do think there's this part of, you're activated and you're running on adrenaline. Then you're like, oh, well, I kind of like that old stuff. Then you start grieving for the old stuff. And then you have to start coming to some grips of, well, maybe this is just how it is. And I think that if we're getting into this is how it is, it has a whole range of implications for how we think about the people who work with and for us, including the top team. Interesting. I'm, I'm seeing there's real strength, top teams that were actual teams 
are responding differently than top teams that were acting like a federation, you know, where they kind of went about their own thing and just kind of checked in. I think the check-in people probably thrive better in this environment. The team people probably trying to figure it out without it being all-encompassing throughout their life. Right. So before we get into how leaders are responding, do we have any data? What is the data showing us on the emotional landscape in the workplace? You know, there's an interesting study by a group called Mindshare Partners that has looked at what's happening to the mental health of folks during COVID. And they found that, you know, over 40% of folks that they surveyed uh, described a decline in mental health. But to me, the even more shocking part of it was that they said 40% of the respondents said that no one had called to check in on them. I had no supervisor, no one called just to say, how are you doing? And among the folks that hadn't been checked in on, they had a 38% higher likelihood of reporting that they weren't doing well. That is remarkable. And so checking in on people is so important. And you know, it's it's really uh, amazing the extent to which it makes a difference, and it's amazing the extent to which, you know, for a lot of folks, it's not being done. So speak to that because grief is not a topic we normally talk about in the workplace, right? And often we don't even know if we should raise topics like grief and anxiety and emotions in the workplace, given people's differing comfort levels with those issues. Do you see leaders now starting to open up that discussion? Good ones. I mean, I think we've so, look, if you think of the last, say, 20 years, going back to the turn of the century, maybe 25, if you go back to sort of right around the time when President Clinton was in office, there's been a shift over time of making interactions more antiseptic and more sanitized. And I think we've grown two generations of leaders who sometimes feel like stepping into what would be viewed as the personal space beyond the trite, how you doing? I mean, think about most conversations. Right. How you doing isn't actually asking for an honest response. It's a genericized greeting. When in this context, we actually would like to know how you're doing. So I think there's both a stick and an authenticity that for many leaders is actually the starting point is missing because they weren't doing it beforehand. So they have to come in and actually talk about it. Yeah, and another part of that is that leaders are often asking more of their employees now. And employees are under tremendous burdens and pressures and additional taxes. So it can be difficult, I'm sure, for employees to know how to answer that question when they're asked. If it's even okay to answer honestly. Like, how would you code switch? Yeah. Like, if Brian exactly. and I meet somebody we don't really know and go, how you doing? Most of the time, you expect the generic, oh, doing fine. Keep the face up. It's very few relationships when you look at the person, like in the old trust equation, the intimacy part at the end. If you actually have intimacy with someone, you could go, you know, actually, I'm going nuts. <laughs> right. Right. And like, you know, at a time, <laughs> right. like, hey, by the way, try working with two kids in the house. Right. Or, you know, do you right. understand enough about the person's context to reasonably understand what you're asking them? So you were just talking about we're asking more. I don't know if the volume of what we're asking more is more or less. I do know it's harder to get it done for a lot of people, right? Whether it's, you know, mm -hmm. two people working, two people trying to work, being in a flat in New York where you're now thinking about adopting a pet and you have a spouse that works and you have kids who are supposed to be doing virtual school. Come on. I don't know anyone who's like that. <laughs> yeah, just a little. No, I, I don't mean, we're know asking that people person. to juggle. <laughs> that person doesn't sound familiar. Right. Right. And what, one of the interesting things to me is we worked with a client who wanted to take on organizational health during the pandemic. 
said, look, I really want to understand the health of the organization. And we did what we would typically do in organizational health, but remotely. And what was amazing was when we got uh, the scores back, when we were talking about how they wanted to improve, the leader wanted to make a very personal change story and went to the entire organization and talked openly in a way that hadn't been talked through in that organization about, you know, personal stories, what really mattered to her and her organization, and then had the team via Zoom go into breakout rooms. And I had the privilege of sitting in one of the breakout rooms. And my favorite comment was somebody was like, what you said was amazing, but make it personal. Because I didn't hear the personal part of that. And we all need to hear that. So I'm going to wait until you make it personal. That was what somebody said to their peer. And the quality of those conversations were great. And you hear the comments you know, coming back and the feedback that, hey, this is making a difference. The having the open personal conversations and linking it to work and linking it to our organizational health and performance, it matters. It mattered before the pandemic, but it matters, matters even more than ever now. You know, there's been so much written about leaders' emotional affect being contagious. Bill, you know, you were very forthcoming, as were you, Brian, about the, the way that you're feeling. But what, what is the best way for leaders to respond when employees open up about their sense of loss? I think authenticity, having the humility to acknowledge where you are, not being an amplifier, Right. And if you think about, you know, many leaders think they need to be a cheerleader. Well, that becomes inauthentic. We go, oh, it's awesome. So glad to be here. And everything's on fire behind you. Also not helpful. But you also don't need to be an amplifier, which is, you know, complete downer without seeing light of, okay, we acknowledge where our starting point is. Now, what can we actually do about it? Right. I do think there's a sweet spot there with people who are comfortable with their own discomfort and comfortable with the people in front of them's discomfort and saying, given that, because that's our authentic starting point. Now what? And I, you know, I don't, I just don't think we've grown a lot of leaders who are, if they're not naturally comfortable with it, I think they, it's probably harder for them to work at it than they might've thought. I mean, that's a challenging aspect for people we manage and care about. Once they open up, there's, you know, no way to resolve the situation. It's not a normal managerial issue that you can address and resolve easily, does that complicate their response? It, it does. And I think it's also something that it just requires us to take the time to have empathy and to listen. And we as leaders need to first take time for ourselves. You know, make sure that we're in a spot where we can actually catch when somebody says or hints that it's not going well, that we can engage on it. And then we need to have the time and space to actually engage because those aren't five-minute follow-ups. There, it's a longer conversation. And if that means we as leaders need to look at our calendar differently and so that we're not scheduled back to back so we can actually think, said, ooh, I, you know, I need to follow back up with him or her because of something that was raised yesterday. We need the space. And I think one of the uh, challenges that we all have during COVID is all of a sudden, because at least in our context, we're not on planes, we can be scheduled from 6 a.m., to 10 p.m., back to back to back. And in that world, we don't have space for ourselves or have space you know, to be effective leaders. And we're seeing that challenge. I know others are, but I'm inspired by the folks that do say, hey, stop, I'm creating the space because that's the space we all need. Could you give an example of how 
an employee might give a leader a cue in a conversation that there's something that the leader should ask directly about, given that it's kind of an uncomfortable space. They'll give you a hint, right? Very few are going to say directly. So, you know, like they may say, oof, okay, let me, let me look. When they say, oof, let me look, what they're really saying is, that means you already have a conflict you should ask. But they may not want to be able to surface the conflict. So, you know, just for me, as an example, COVID has meant that as a, as a divorced parent, I have my daughter 50% for real for the first time. So she's here a lot. Had I not said to the teams, listen, I'm going to let you book me. My assistant will book me without asking from seven to six. That's it. After that, I'm manually going to put it in. That means that there's dinner time. There may be homework time, and I'm unwilling to do it. The minute I told the teams that I was doing that, it made it dramatically easier for people to go, hey, you know what? I got I to gotta take care of this thing with you know, my son, whatever. Perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. It wasn't saying the work's not going to get done. It was just saying, make it okay to go. I've got more claims on me now than I traditionally have had. And the, the mere fact that you can openly talk about it, acknowledge it, I think helps. Right. So the fact that this is a shared experience and also that, you know, everyone can see a lot more of each other as a whole person with personal lives and so forth. For example, right now I'm recording this podcast from my bedroom. That would ordinarily have been a ridiculous thought to me, right? Does that contribute to like a a sense of mutual and reciprocal understanding in a way that makes things easier? It does, but it takes the leader to kind of acknowledge that it's okay. As soon as I did a Zoom call while cooking dinner, because it was my turn to cook dinner, all of a sudden we had a lot more people, you know, cooking dinner during our calls, which was great because we're trying to manage all of those pieces. But until then, I don't know if they and their families went hungry while we were talking or, or what happened. But now, you know, once you showed it was okay, like people leapt to the space. And, you know, so I think there is something in showing that, hey, we're all going through this. And as leaders, we see it too. And we're experiencing it that creates some permission for others. Yeah, I don't know what that says about the stereotype about men and multitasking. I'm impressed that you could cook dinner and host Zoom at the same time. I, I prep all the time and don't put it on mute because I want people to hear me chopping. <laughs> and then someone will ask and say, hey, here's what's for dinner. And I'll turn the camera. Look, I, I think this is, Brian, that was a great example. I think it's important. Even if I'm like saying I got to run to the school to pick something up. I take the call from the car, obviously not with video. But part of it is just acknowledge that we all have claims on our time. What I'm interested in for us and not for clients. Now, in places where it's structured, right? So we are a project-based company. And Fridays were often the home day. That often meant that we had associates accumulating things that needed to happen on Friday and made it difficult for them to get in. I am curious after this experience, if we give more flex during the week and about tra- and travel being more purposeful, if we won't actually see a return to Fridays really being prioritized, because that was a day where we can actually reinvest in us in the tie that binds. And I think many companies, even non-project-based ones, but while they have employees working remotely, are going to need to be more purposeful about the specific points at which the workplace as a convening point comes back to the fore. But I do think we're, we're on borrowed time here. You know, if you view relationships as, you know, what's called ex- social exchange relationships, you have a credit of goodwill built up uh, knowing people over time. You're, we're drawing down on that account right now. We are. And at some point, we need to reinvest in it. And I think that's a purposeful activity, not a happenstance activity. And we probably need to get really clear on when it's going to be safe to bring people back in and reinvest. Before we leave this um, 
to me, still perplexing notion of Brian cooking dinner at the same time that he's leading a Zoom call. There was just an article a couple of days ago in the New York Times about um, rising resentments among employees who don't have families and children for feeling like they're taking on a heavier load during this crisis than many families who are, you know, in the best cases, offered additional support and additional leave. So what does this mean, you know, for folks who don't have those same claims? They should have the same claim. On their time. Right. I mean, at least in our experience and a couple of my clients who instituted immediately upon COVID, like COVID days, every client I know who put in COVID days is seeing them not being used. It is remarkable, right? Most clients have EAPs. The likelihood that they're being used is usually pretty small. So I, I think there's a mindset thing here around, oh, I don't have a kid. I don't have a partner on this. Therefore, I have to shoulder this or oh, I should. How about I need my own sanity? I have to be able to go work out. I got to be able to go for a run, whatever. I do think some of this, and they tend to be younger, often younger employees. Mm-hmm. I think we need to help people. Everyone claim my own sanity matters. My own physical health matters. See, this to me is actually, I'm hopeful, one of the things that will be an annuity going forward. Whereas we used to have like team, you know, learnings and they'd say, okay, I like to work out here. I want to have dinner there. This ought to be instilling the idea that raising your hand and saying, I'm a lot better. If I can count on the work, I can schedule a little bit around it and actually do specific deposits for my own mental and physical well-being. I think we'll be better off for it. We just need to help them to do it in respect to what you're saying. They're walking Mm -hmm. around being resentful. Resentful is really problematic if it's not identified and resolved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think there's another level to it too, which is for me being home being with my kids who are now 16 and 14 is a huge silver lining. I've got a social uh, safety net right here in my house. You know, if I've not had a good day, I can grab the guitar with my older son who also plays the guitar and, you know, and we can play for half an hour and it's great. And if you're not with somebody at home and you don't have another person you're taking care of, you also don't have those outlets. You don't have those pieces, so you need to go for your run. You need to do the things that Bill is talking about. And I don't think that there's been enough conversation among, hey, the folks that used to maybe go out after work or for for whom their office community is their family. Right. You know, those folks we need to pay just as much attention to and and recognize that if everything gets starts to feel like gets dumped on them, they don't have the same natural release points or points of connectivity that some of the rest of us do. And we need to be compassionate with them and listen because in some ways they're looking to listen. I haven't seen the data, but loneliness must be rising, particularly among folks who are not living with roommates or families or don't have built in organic interaction with others. Let's talk a bit about what grief or loneliness or anxiety might look like in the workforce. We all know what acute grief might look like. We understand the immensity of the pain of losing a friend or a loved one, which many people have unfortunately undergone in this in this crisis. But there are other subtler kinds of grieving as well. First off, what what do we what do we mean when we talk about grief in this context? What kinds of loss and so forth? Interesting enough, I think loss is the right word. The obvious and transparent mm-hmm. ones are the death of a loved one. 
right? That's that's straightforward. This has been such a major disruption to people's sources of identity, and in many cases, their source of interactions. That for many of them, loneliness is real. Full stop. And all of the all of the behavioral things they would have done previously. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go to a bar. I'm going to go hang out at a friend's house. In many cases, they've been taken away from them. So it's loss. It's loss for the previous sort of like connections. It's also just loss period of their own. This is what I do. I think we've grown, particularly people who are, you know, where work has taken up a lot of their time. There's a big gaping hole, right? In what, what they're going to do outside it. And so I think we have, it's almost like for those that would compensate by filling in just with work, we need to help them to keep them doing it. But I do think we could all start with lots of people are going to long for how it was and not sure about how, what to do with how it is. Uh, just even opening with it, the willingness to have that conversation. And I think it would be a good start. And interestingly, I think some of the things that people have missed are things you never would have thought before the pandemic they would have missed. So there's a great article a couple of months ago about people missing their commute and grieving for their commute. And you're like, who in the world wants to spend two hours in the car every day? Well, it turns out that that has a healthy psychological effect, transitioning between home and work, allowing you to mentally prepare for your day. It's also the day where you can be renewed by listening to things like podcasts uh, in the car or relaxing to the music. It was built in time to transition from one environment to the other. And the absence of that has caused some people to say, look, I, really, I, I don't have that transition anymore. I'm not listening to things I used to listen to. I'm not doing it. And they have a real sense of loss for something that at the beginning we all would have said, isn't it great the commute's going away? So there was a period when I missed the time that I spend on the New York City subway system, believe it or not, specifically because I do a lot of reading during that commute and there aren't children or colleagues interrupting me. It's it's super um, me time. And now looking back, it seems inexplicable that I would spend... 90 minutes a day on the subway. And I can't understand how, if I'm asked to do that again, I will do it. So there's a process that oscillates, right? As your relationship to those experiences changes. Bear with me for a second, but city life in particular tends to be confined spaces, even for those who are reasonably affluent, right? It's not big, enormous places. Separation physically and mentally from one role to another. So it's not just code switching. It is also the physical space around you. Like in my case, I'd have, you know, an hour from my house to Newark. I had the same guy drive me for 15 years. Like he's honestly like an extended member of the family. But there's this transition from out in the morning, kiss goodbye, love you, see you later, car, sleepily scrolling through emails, airport, right? Global services member, I know the role I play here, cut to the front of the line, plane, laptop, work, and then go. But each of us has stages in our transitions. The physicalness of what's going on around us, it's very difficult, maybe even honestly a bit unnerving, that we don't have that physical transition. And it's like, well, which role am I in? I mean, literally, I'm staring at the kitten that we've adopted. I'm thinking, am I taking enough care of this? Does it need food? <laughs> right? My daughter, when, when she's here to 50% of the time, she'll come in. She doesn't go out of her way to interrupt me, but I'll think, well, am I ignoring her? It's just because I know she's here. And I do wonder if there's in the more confined spaces you are, if you just don't get a break from it. Some of us have like office spaces, maybe you close the door, maybe not. But I do, there is a reason why the workplace was created. 
Sometimes it was for scale. Sometimes it was connectivity. Sometimes it's just, this is the role I'm in. And I, I wonder if we're not struggling a bit with what role am I in when all of my roles are converging in one place. How do you think these many sort of emotional complexities and new challenges to navigate are manifesting themselves in performance and in behavior at work? I think they affect performance in a few ways. I think what we're starting to see is that, again, if you don't have the space to think, and the space to collaborate and the interactions. As, as Bill was talking about earlier, you know, we're pulling down on a reservoir of goodwill, a reservoir of connections. And as that starts to, to decline, and as we're as the other time is filled up, we don't have the space to be as creative. We don't have the space to be um, as connected in developing the next new idea or addressing the hard problem. So I think for folks that do office work or creative work or knowledge-based work, I think, you know, we were riding on some goodwill and some adrenaline that now is, you know, maybe starting to wane. And I think there's a different set of challenges for our essential workers, the ones who've been on the front line, the ones that every single day feel like their health may be at risk every single day feel like their jobs may be at risk uh, for those in, for example, accommodation food service where, you know, demand has gone down and the, you know, continued pressure in those industries, I think is going to cause stress. And fortunately, you know, in the places that I've been, I've run into, you know, the most gracious flight attendant, the most gracious, like during this time, you know, everybody kind of gets that they're in it together, but you've got to imagine that underneath that there is, uh, just a real uh, tension that you know, may not show up to customers, but may um, you know, be something that weighs on them with their crew, with the uh, you know, folks outside of work. So now that we're at an interval where many employees may have been running on adrenaline and we're shifting into a longer-term mode, acknowledging potential persistence of this kind of uncertainty. Is there anything specific that leaders should be doing to facilitate this transition as people, you know, are kind of recalibrating to a longer term? It might help just to have a role clarity conversation with all of them. You know, when you're in the fire drill, it's all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. Everybody's just leaning in the help and, you're, and your, your day job is a notional sort of guess of what you're going to work on, but everybody's just diving in. If you're settling into this and this is how it's going to be, I think a useful conversation around what are we really trying to do? What's the objectives we're hitting? What can you decide on your own? What do you not have to come back for? Who should you be working with? Just more regular and let's say maybe a little bit more frequent for sure. Uh, check-ins on roll card. It might help. Just, I think so much of this is you're trying to help people understand why what they're doing matters and what they can count on. And, I, I, you know, there's enough uncertainty. Work shouldn't have to be part of it. Right. The benefit of that is that, you know, that's, that's an important question at any time. So foregrounding that now could potentially have longer-term benefits as well. Yeah, I think just building on role clarity, it's also what good looks like. Hey, w- what are the wins? What are the most important things that we can do to create value this week? 
What are the priorities? How do we have it? So in conjunction with the role conversation, you're having the periodic conversation of, you know, what's important and what are we focused on? I guess the environment is changing quickly and having that regular check-in also allows team members to say, it sounds like there are a lot of important things that I'm not sure we can get done this week. How can we prioritize or how can we bring in other team members? But having that regular conversation on role and what the expectations are, you know, I think is helpful. Yeah. And it also seems to provide an opportunity for a discussion of broader emotional challenges and so forth. If those challenges have not been surfaced in different ways by employees themselves, it's a proactive way of inviting that conversation in a sense. So let's talk for a minute about a specific example returning to the office. Among those of us who are still working remotely, which is not everyone, some colleagues may be raring to get back to the office. They're missing the office so much and will assume a certain amount of risk to get back in. Others, no way. And then some might feel some kind of fundamental ambivalence. One complication there is that Those who feel less comfortable about the return may also feel that they have to return in order to, you know, preserve their status at work and protect their jobs in a kind of competitive landscape, especially as the economy is changing. So how have leaders managed that transition? I think it usually starts with a conversation around uh, the values of the organization. And even one step above that, the purpose. Why are we here? And what do we value? And when it's anchored that way, it comes out and says, look, we've, yes, we value serving our customers, but we also value making sure that each and every one of our employees is safe and feels safe. And we're seeing more companies expressly, expressly define that as a value. And by doing it in that way, it creates the permission for somebody to refer back to said, I feel this tension, but I hear this articulation of the values and allows them to articulate that with their manager, allows managers in meetings to be corrected by somebody when they're like, oh, I really wish Schnogs would show up. You know, we need them. Like, hey, we that's actually not part of our values. And I think, you know, the re-anchoring in purpose and the re-anchoring in values is something that I've seen be very effective in ensuring that everyone in the organization is aligned as to how we should be thinking about the situation. One of the things I think is for leaders not to be self-indulgent on a call for people to return. You know, I have a, a not-for-profit I work with where the leader, let's say in the best of times, is uh, old school and, has, and just believes that people can't work together unless they're seeing each other. And so force the issue for people to come back into the office. I think that person... Is, has burned down their goodwill credit so much just by something that really was about them in a way that people, are, people who had reservations didn't really feel like they were heard. So I think this is either one of those moments, if you do what Brian had just described, anchor on what we stand for, how we know we're going to have impact and how we run the place. And you live into that by actually then acknowledging what people feel safe doing because it is lives and livelihoods. It's not just livelihoods. You start with that, I think you earn some credits because you put some control in the hands of the employees. It is choice, after all. If you don't do that and you make it about you and what you think needs to happen, they're going to leave you one way or the other. 
right? Because it's it's so one way that power dynamic that why would anyone ever now and it's now it's real physical health that's believed to be at risk. Why would anyone stay with that? And and I think there there's a piece here of linking the purpose and values because the purpose of some organizations is to serve people most in need. Think about a hospital. Think about why they're there. And so you are going to have people that need to show up and put themselves at risk in service of others. And they did it every day before the pandemic and they need to do it now. But not every organization's purpose requires them to put employees at risk in the same way, particularly those that feel most vulnerable. So I think it's that intersection that is important to communicate because in some cases it is part of the job. And we all should be very grateful to have folks do them. We should all, you know, think about how to how to best support those employees in those circumstances. But you know, companies differ, purposes differ. I think that in, enters into this too. And openly acknowledging it, Lucia, I think there's a real opportunity here from and you know, we all used to talk about reward and recognition as being like a, you know, a real, a real leverage point for leaders. I'm not talking about reward like, oh, go write him a check. I mean, recognizing the sacrifices people are making to deliver impact every day, just being honest about it. And sometimes that sacrifice is keeping fear at bay, which is, you know what? It takes a toll. What happens once we've moved beyond this pandemic? Do you see a more secular change in the way that we interact with our employees empathically and so forth? I hope so. I hope this is an acceleration in that. Uh, one of my favorite people leaders uh, had a saying, uh, people have a lot of life going on. And that was true before the pandemic. And it's true now and it will be true after. And I think what the pandemic has done is it's amplified the amount of life that's going on and given us all a front row seat to it. You know, to, to literally looking in the Zoom as to what's happening you know, across and therefore opening the conversation. And I'm hoping that accelerant, that um, bringing it such to the fore that we all have to talk about it, that we remember there's still a lot of life going on afterwards, that we now have learned how to have the conversations and we continue doing it. Any last words from either of you besides be kind, be sensitive? It's okay. Maybe it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to acknowledge that it's difficult. Being the uh, person who's the leader doesn't mean you're impervious. You know, things like emotion, fear, anxiety. <clears throat> it shouldn't be paralytic, right? I don't mean that. But just, you know, being willing to engage and open that it's there. And maybe one other thought, maybe something we can pick up in another conversation. The zest and enthusiasm for speed and the buzzword of agility and large spans of control. I do hope there are times that we... We don't confuse what we've learned is possible with what we would desire for the status quo. I don't think anyone would sign up for it or very few would sign up for it as, oh, I love this. Let's do this all the time. What a big difference. And you know, I, I hear just hints of, oh, well, we don't ever need to get together for training again. You might be missing the point, man. Part of getting together for training was the community. And I'm just hopeful at some point we can pause long enough to say, we have choice. We recognize that we have choice. We've understood about pace, but at what cost? and make an informed decision about what it will be going forward. Brian? I would say take time for yourself as a leader. Create that space. And then create the same, and then pay that forward. Take time for yourself and 
make sure you're taken care of and then take the time for your folks and recognize you can't be scheduled back to back and take care of yourself and take care of your team. So really, you know, thinking about how you spend your time during the, uh, during the pandemic, I think is the, the biggest thing I'd add. Fantastic. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you. That was Bill Shaninger and Brian Hancock. For more information or to hear our other podcasts, please visit us at mckinsey.com. I'm Lucia Rahili. Thanks for listening. <laughs>